Hello, and welcome to episode number 363 of the Armin Show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more. Subscribe if you haven't, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it might be. Check out the show. On this one here, we have the author of this very cool looking book, I must say, because it's got style to it. Black, red, black, red, 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 black. And it is the author, Alfred Mealy, of the Florida State University. He is the William H. and Lucille T. Workmeister Professor of Philosophy there, author of 12 books, editor of seven, written over 200 articles, past director of two multi-million dollar interdisciplinary projects, The Big Questions in Free Will Project in 2010, and The Philosophy of Science and Science of Self-Control Project in 2014. Alfred, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to have you on here. Free will is a very important topic. I've covered it lightly in past times, but it is almost a very human topic of sorts to cover. Before we get into the topic, how did you get into this category in the first place? Was this already interesting to you at six years old? Oh, uh, let's see. Free will. Well, I started off working on Aristotle, mainly Aristotle's philosophy of action. One thing Aristotle talked about quite a bit was weakness of will, which is doing what you know you shouldn't do from the point of view of your own values, like thinking that you shouldn't smoke but smoking, or thinking that you shouldn't drive over the legal limit for alcohol but doing it anyway. So I was working on that kind of thing, uh, general explanations of intentional behavior. And then around the mid-90s, I thought, well, now I'm ready to think about free will. So that's how I got into it. It was step-by-step, step, getting sucked into it. It's cool. Everything step-by-step step is the best way. Skipping steps means you try to rush something, and then you don't get the level of understanding that you could have by yeah. following the process in a way. Yeah. That's cool. Now, for the average individual, is free will something that is worth them understanding, or can it be a bit much for them to take in. It's kind of a broader societal question, but the, does the average individual, can they absorb this concept or might it be too complex? Okay, to take no, in? I, I don't think it's too complex. Now, for one thing, there really is a lot of interest in it among uh, lay folk or ordinary people or however you want to describe people. Um, for example, for my Big Questions in Free Will grant, there was uh, a TV series associated with it and a documentary. And the last time I checked, that documentary had over one and a half million uh, views. So that's a lot of people looking at stuff that you know might seem esoteric. Um, philosophical discussion of free will that's intended for other specialists, other philosophers who uh, specialize in the topic can be very complicated, uh, but things can be made quite simple. And that's that's what I try to do in this book. I try to explain free will in a way that everybody can understand. I like what you do in the book where it's not about the end result of this is the outcome or what we describe, but it's the possibilities along the way in explaining this route. Could it be? If not, okay, this route, it could be. If not, okay. It's very good to break it down into elements so that the individual can think about which uh, end they lean towards. 
Yeah, yeah. One thing I wanted to do was to give readers uh, reasonable options for conceiving of free will, for defining it. You might think of it that way. And I presented them with options. I presented them with pros and cons of each option. I tried to nudge them a bit in, in my direction. But the main idea was to give them enough uh, background information that they would be in a position to make up their own minds, how to think about free will, and then how to think about whether we have it or don't. Some parts that you wrote about, I always used to use this description when I would talk about this with individuals that I am at this current moment, and then what is the likelihood that me moving my hand here like that was not already set in motion in the previous moment and the moment after that, uh, before that. And you uh, lightly went in that direction also in the book. So if I went in and brought up that hypothetical, what is there to say that me at this moment versus me at the exact, we'll call it moment before that was not directly connected and it wasn't really in my hands? Yeah, okay. Uh, so really, there that takes us to a, a deeper background kind of issue. So I should set up the background and then, then directly respond. Um, so one thing, this is background now. One thing I do in the book is to sketch two different sets of sufficient conditions for doing a thing freely, especially for deciding freely to do a thing, where you're thinking, should I do this, should I do that? And then you decide to do this, say. And it could be a simple thing like um, you're walking in the woods and you come to a fork in the trail and you can go left or you can go right or you can stop or you can turn around and go back. And you think, well, this way, that way, back or what? And you uh, decide to go left, say. Now, on one way of thinking about free will, if that decision wasn't compelled by anything, uh, if it wasn't something that you were deceived into doing, and so on, if it was made on the basis of relevant information without coercion uh, or force, then it was free. Um, and that means it would be free, even if it turned out that the universe was such that the other decisions weren't really open to you. You couldn't have made them. So that's one way to think about free will, and some people say, no, that's not good enough. You have to add to what we have already, that at that very moment, everything being the same right up until then, um, you could have decided differently. And one way to picture it is in terms of possible universes. So in the actual universe at that time, you decide to go left. But if things are the way these people want them to be, then there would be another possible universe, just possible, that's exactly the same as the actual one up until then, in which you make a different decision. And they would require that uh, for free will. So that's two ways to go. Uh, and they, they have a lot of stuff in common, like you're not being deceived, you're not being pushed around or forced. And then they have one uh, big difference. On one side, it's required that you be able to do otherwise in the sense I just explained. And I call that deep openness. So it's open to you in a deep metaphysical way, which way you go. And uh, the other way doesn't require that kind of openness. Um, now, your question really was about what's 
what's the actual universe like? Is it such that at a moment in time, everything being the same up until we decide to do A, we could decide to do B instead, or isn't it like that? Um, and we don't know. We don't know yet. Um, the dominant view in quantum mechanics seems to be that the universe is indeterministic, that uh, the law, relevant laws are probabilistic and so on. But that doesn't mean that our decision-making is indeterministic right at that last moment, that at the last moment we really could go this way or that. You can't really infer that from what we might believe in physics. Um, now, although it might seem very plausible that you need to be, be able to do otherwise in that deep sense uh, in order to act freely, there is a really interesting thought experiment that challenges it. And it goes all the way back to a paper written by Harry Frankfurt and published in 1969. I could run through that thought experiment for you. This would be an appropriate place to do it. And we'll see what you think. All right, so the question now is, hey, do you need to be able to decide otherwise than you did in order to decide freely? Okay, that's the question. Here's the thought experiment. This is um, an updated version of Frankfurt's own uh, thought experiment. But it may be not updated all that much. But there's a sort of uh, super genius around who can read your mind. And so he can tell what you're about to decide. And he also can control you so that if he wants you to decide to steal my car, say, he can make you decide that. And he can make you decide it at a particular point in time. Um, and it turns out, let's not make it you, some guy named Jack. Some guy named Jack is thinking about stealing my car. And Jack sometimes does steal cars and sometimes he doesn't. And he's thinking about, you know, will he steal mine or not? And this uh, super intelligent guy uh, is reading his mind. And the guy doesn't like to interfere unless he needs to. So if he sees that uh, Jack is going to decide on his own at noon to steal my car, uh, he'll just let him do it. And if he sees that Jack isn't going to do that, then he'll make him decide at noon to steal my car. Okay, so now as it turns out, you know, Jack is thinking about what to do, and he's got this kind of internal openness, internal indeterminism, really. And uh, at noon, he decides on his own to steal my car. Um, now, did he decide freely? And what we think is, well, we have a couple of thoughts. One is, well, he couldn't have decided otherwise, because if he hadn't decided on his own to steal it, the fancy guy on the side uh, would have made him decide to steal it. So either way, he's going to de decide to steal my car, and he's going to decide at noon to do that. Uh, but did he do it freely? And so now we take a step back and we think, well, he decided it on the basis of his own thinking. He wasn't caused to decide it by the potential intervener. Um, so let's take the intervener out of the story and imagine that there's just Jack. He's thinking about whether to steal my car, and he decides to steal it. And then put the intervener back in, but he doesn't do anything to Jack. He's just ready to do something. So how could that turn an action that seems to be free into an unfree one? So that 
thought experiment, I hope I didn't run through it too quickly. That thought uh-huh. experiment uh, persuaded a whole bunch of people that, yeah, really, you don't need to be able to do otherwise in order to decide freely or act freely. What you need really is not to be forced into doing it. That's what you need. Uh, And so then it seemed to many people, not all, that that first conception of free will, the one that doesn't require deep openness, really is good enough because you don't need the ability to do otherwise that the deep openness is supposed to give you. Compulsion seems to be the important element that separates there. If you're compelled to do something, then it is out of your hands. If you're not compelled to do it, whichever way you go appears to be within your hands. That's the thinking. That's exactly Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Now, what, well, so how could one check the source of compulsion or if it's in place in some way? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing you might be asking about are empirical tests and another thing, uh, conceptual tests. But, um, and then, you know, you could look into the literature on uh, addiction or obsessive compulsive disorder and so on. And you'll see criteria for compulsion and uh, they give us evidence for compulsion. Uh, it's all really tricky business. Like, think about addiction. Is it really true that, say, a heroin addict can't refrain from using the drug at a particular point in time? Or is it just very difficult for the person to resist uh, the temptation to use it? And that kind of question is really hard to resolve. Um, there were studies done of uh, military people who were addicted to heroin in the Vietnam War, and they came back to the U.S., and many of them were able to quit uh, cold turkey. So it looked like, um, you know, really it was partly up to them whether they persisted in the behavior or not. Uh, and this this is really a very difficult question, and it's not so much a philosophical question as a scientific one and a, a medical one. Right. It's like almost, was there a prefrontal cortex decision-making able to counter the forces around them or uh, within them biochemically, and then they would be able to make the decision that they could see would be better for them versus it's out of my hands and must do this. Yeah, Yeah. that's more of a scientific thing. Yeah. Also, you know, in that connection, it looks like believing that it's up to you what you do uh, is healthy. It gives you a better chance of improving things. Say. And I'm not saying we should believe that we have free will just for these practical reasons, but um, we shouldn't disbelieve it on the basis of evidence that isn't very strong. I was, that came up to me while I was reading the book. If there was a way to take the thinking and apply it to, if we have the ability, what we are doing, we would want to err on the side of believing in disability or uh, our own control of items because the other side would leave us in a framework where it's not in our hands. So 
we can't alter the way the future could be to anything that we envision it. It's like a self-perpetuating that way versus self-perpetuating that way it would appear to be. Yeah, I think there is something to that, right? So if you think, well, if I don't have free will, then it's hopeless to change things. Uh, you know, you might just give up and, uh, and not enjoy life much. Whereas if you think you really do have free will, you're able to make things better for yourself and others. You might try it and you might succeed and things might uh, get better. And there's actually uh, evidence, hard evidence in social psychology that uh, belief in free will uh, is correlated with more success in school, at work, and and so on. So there is that. I don't press the pragmatic line really in the book. I, I want people to think about uh, whether what free will is first, and then whether we really do have it or we really don't. Because um, another question is, even if we don't, should we believe that we do? <laughs> and that that question I don't uh, go into in the book really. The interesting one by the way is one thing you brought up in the book that i thought was cool is one way of looking at free will if we have free will in the current moment then we had to have it in the previous moment going backwards and backwards uh from the beginning which may negate that we have free will at all because at some point we weren't even full form can you speak on that concept of needing free will the whole way down? Yeah. See, now that is one of the arguments that free will is impossible. And the way it goes really is like this. Um, suppose you do something. Well, if you do it, you know, you do it for reasons or on the basis of things you like or dislike or want or don't want. Um, so given that that's the case, you're going to be doing it freely only if you freely brought about one of those likes or dislikes or desires or, or whatever. So then you take a step back and you ask, well, did I freely bring about any of these attitudes of mine that were um, among the causes of my behavior? And then the question is, well, did I? Only if I freely brought about some of the attitudes on the basis of which those attitudes were generated. And then you go back and back in time. Um, and it turns out that you can't get free will off the ground because in the beginning, say the first decision a little kid makes, well, the kid isn't uh, responsible really for any preceding decisions because he didn't make any. And he's not really responsible for any earlier behavior. Um, yeah, that's an infinite regress argument uh, for the non-existence of free will. And I think when you look at an argument like that, which is interesting, the question to ask is, what's more likely, that you really do need to be responsible for part of the basis of a decision in order for the decision to be free, on the one hand, or that neonates uh, eventually develop into beings who sometimes act freely? And it looks like, you know, the concept of free will was developed uh, for us, for human beings. And so part of the concept really should include that uh, beings can move from being newborn infants who don't do anything freely to being people who act freely. It's nice to look at it from us to before we had developed in any way. And then that's one counter to free will. Can you speak on another counter to 
that free will could exist. Yeah, uh, without going into the scientific arguments yet. There is, uh, by the way, one chapter on scientific arguments for the non-existence of free will in that book. But I didn't go into it at great length there because I wrote another book for a general audience that is about scientific attacks on uh, belief in free will. So, so for now, anyway, we'll stick with the philosophical ones. Yeah, there's an argument that I call the no free will uh, either way argument. And it, it goes like this. Uh, either a decision is determined or it's undetermined. If it's determined, that is deterministically caused by previous events, um, then it's not free because the person couldn't have done otherwise. And if it's not determined, then it's random. And so it's not free. So either way, it's not free. That's the no free will uh, either way argument. Um, and I already responded really to the first part of it uh, today when I talked about those Frankfurt style cases with the potential intervener who blocks off other ways you could decide, but doesn't force you to decide what you decide. Um, and then the uh, other wing of the argument, I, I talk about quite a bit too in the book. So the idea there is if determinism is false, then our behavior is random, so it's not free. So, you know, you, you could think of it this way. They're saying uh, free behavior requires determinism because otherwise it's random. And they try to force you onto that horn of things and then force you to think, oh, yeah, but if it's determined, then it's not free because you can't do otherwise. Okay. But back to uh, undetermined. Yeah, so suppose a decision a person makes is undetermined. Um which story do I want to use? Oh, here, here's one. I think this one's in the book. I've written so many books and articles on free will, I don't quite remember what's where, but uh, here's one that I, I use a lot. So there's this guy named Bob, and um, he promised to toss a coin at noon to start a high school football game. And he lives in a town where people bet on everything, including uh, whether the coin toss will happen on time. So he made this promise in advance to toss the coin at noon. And as noon is approaching, this uh, gambler, Carl, comes up to Bob and says, hey, look, if you just leave that coin in your pocket and pretend to be trying to find it uh, and wait for two minutes and toss it at 12.02, then I'll give you 50 bucks. And so Bob is thinking, well, you know, I could get the 50 bucks just by pretending to be looking for the coin in my pocket or I could do what I promised to do. And let's say in the uh, actual world, what he decides to do is to cheat, to pretend to be looking for the coin in his pocket. Um, and suppose that the world is indeterministic in the way I described earlier. Maybe I should check this one. Um, indeterministic in a way I described earlier, so that at that very moment, Everything being the same up until then, he could have made the opposite decision. He could have decided to do the right thing. So we look at Bob in these two worlds, and we think, we might think, well, geez, isn't it just a matter of luck that he decided to do the bad thing rather than deciding to do the good thing? Because after all, everything being the same right up until then, he could have made the other decision. And that is this luck or randomness worry 
that is uh, featured in this uh, no free will either way argument. And you can feel the force of it. You, you could think, yeah, you know, why should I blame that guy? He just got unlucky. Um, so how should the person who believes in this indeterministic kind of free will respond? And this, this gets very complicated, but it, it takes us all the way back to little kids again. So here's the way to think about it. When you think about Bob in these two worlds and you're thinking, oh, he's just getting unlucky, you're not really thinking about how the different probabilities of his doing the different things came to be as they are. So we say there's the antecedent probability that he'll decide to cheat, and there's the antecedent probability that he'll decide to do the right thing. And maybe we're imagining in my story that it's 50-50. But if it is 50-50, or any, 60-40 or, or whatever, how did it get to be that way? And then what we do is we look back a bit in time and think about previous decisions he made and whether those decisions and his reflection on their consequences uh, increase the probability of making uh, immoral decisions in the future or increase the probability of making better decisions in the future or not. And then you might say, yeah, but, you know, those are, are more decisions. And so they're going to be luck-infused, too. And, you know, you'd have to admit it if you have a view of free will like this. And then eventually, eventually you go back and back, and you get to what might be a kid's first free decision. And there the antecedent probabilities aren't going to be things that the kid is responsible for, because this is going to be the first free act at all of the kid, if it is free. And what you might think is, or ask yourself is, well, what is the bar or threshold for free action for a young kid, four or five years old, or whenever you think this process starts? Um, where is the threshold? And you might think, well, it's going to be pretty low because uh, little kids, you know, in normal cases, don't do anything really bad or, or really great. They just do trivial stuff. Like they might... Um, pull their sister's hair, even though they know they're not supposed to, or they might resist an urge to do it. Um, so maybe we have um, a pretty low bar for uh, free will in little kids. And we might think, yeah, you know, kids that age have impulse control problems. Compare a four-year-old to an eight-year-old, normal kids. They have uh, problems anticipating the consequences of their actions and so on. So they have those problems, and then we just mix in this indeterminism. Well, that might seem to be a minor problem relative to these other ones. So if the other ones wouldn't prevent us from saying that the kids make free decisions, why should mixing in this indeterminism do that? So then, in this kind of way, you get the kids in, in your thinking about things over the bar. Now they have a little bit of free will and a little bit of moral responsibility. And now this can be amplified over time by making good decisions. They can raise the probability of future good decisions by making bad decisions, raise the probability of future bad ones. And uh, they can reflect on the consequences of their decisions, learn, etc. So that is the way I would respond anyway to the uh, indeterministic horn of the no free will either way argument. Um, I should say before I stop on this one that, so there are two main divisions in the philosophy of free will. There are what we call compatibilists and incompatibilists. And I don't introduce that terminology early in the book because I want to 
get people a sort of unbiased uh, conception of things, but eventually I do. And the compatibilists say, even in a universe in which determinism is true, you can act freely. And the incompatibilists deny that. And a lot of the free will literature is on arguments from, uh, with those two groups, one against the other. And that issue, I just stay agnostic on. I, I stand outside of it. And I develop two different views of free will, one for compatibilists and one for incompatibilists. And this uh, stuff about little kids really can be used by both groups. One thing that came to mind while you were describing that was as far as the randomness or ability for something to be lucky, is there a way that looking at the universe or the current universe as a whole would remove that as there would be no luck or randomness at play? Yeah. So it could turn out that the indeterministic interpretations of quantum mechanics are wrong and actually that there are hidden variables so that determinism is true. And what determinism means uh, in the free will philosophy stuff is the following. So determinism is true of a universe uh, when a complete list of the laws of nature and a complete description of the universe at any point in time entails all other truths about the universe including all the truths about anything uh, anyone will ever do. So one way to try to picture it is you can imagine uh, a being with the brain, uh, a brain the size of Jupiter or something, and it knows all the laws of nature, and it knows exactly what the universe was like uh, 10 billion years ago. And it can put that information together and deduce from it infallibly, without a possibility of error, all other truths about the universe, including everything that will ever happen. So if the universe is like that, you don't have the kind of luck that I was talking about, luck at the moment of decision. It's, you know, it's determined what you'll decide from shortly after the Big Bang. But you do have a different kind of luck. So the, the really successful, happy person was lucky that billions of years ago, things were such that he'd be really successful and happy. And the miserable, unsuccessful person is unlucky that billions of years ago, things were such that he would be that way, unhappy and miserable. Um, so both uh, kinds of you have a problem about luck. It's just that the luck is located in different places. In one case, it's located in the head at the moment of decision. And in uh, another, the other case, it's located back shortly after the Big Bang. Oh, I see. Separating it temporally. That's cool. Now, what is what is a strong case for the compatibilist view of thinking? Yeah, okay. That's a good question. Sometimes people say compatibilists don't really have any argument for thinking that compatibilism is true. What they have are counter-arguments, arguments against people who you know, argue that uh, compatibilism isn't true. Well, one way to, to think about it is um, compatibilists are thinking of free will in a really down-to-earth sort of way, a way where it's intimately connected with moral responsibility 
and institutions of punishment and legal institutions and so on. And if uh, free will is such a down-to-earth kind of thing, how could its existence depend on, as compatibles sometimes put it, esoteric facts about the depths of physics? That is, you know, whether the universe is deterministic. And, um, and there's something to that. Uh, another bit of support for compatibilism is that Frankfurt-style story where you might think, well, the reason that compatibilism is wrong is that free will requires the ability to do otherwise. Uh, and then the Frankfurt-style story is supposed to show that free will doesn't require that ability. Another kind of bit of support you get for compatibilism, but this too is a sort of negative support, is, well, look, we compatibilists don't have that problem of uh, present luck, the problem of luck in the head at the moment of decision. Um, and a compatibilist might say, if that problem is decisive, if that kind of luck at the moment of decision uh, precludes free will, then we can just say those actions aren't free. But actions that don't involve luck, there could be free. Um, yeah, that's, I don't think I do anything more than that in support of compatibilism in the book. Those are the main considerations. Uh, probably the one that will strike people as the most positive one is the bit about free will being a down-to-earth notion and so not depending on things in the depths of physics. One thing that comes to mind, the Frankfurt-style description you have earlier is I see like a narrow hallway and you can only walk through it, but you feel like you're choosing to walk through it, but it's the only path yeah. of direction for you to go. <laughs> that, that is, a, that's an analog of a Frankfurt style case, right? There are all these doors, let's say, and you think oh, I could open this one, that one, go that way, but they're all locked and you never check. So, so you don't know. <laughs> oh yeah. So before I get to the actual Frankfurt style case, um, I start with, um, a more ordinary sort of case just to get people warmed up for the Frankfurt style case. And it's sort of like yours. It's um, these philosophers are having a convention and uh, Anne and Bob are, well, they're actually talking about Frankfurt style cases, but it's noisy in the lobby where they are. And so Bob's, Oh, that's right. The editor made me change it because it was Anne and Bob and they were going to go up to Bob's room and the editor was worried. Oh, people are going to think something <laughs> Uh, salacious is going to happen. So I, I changed it to Anne and Beth, I think, you know, to make that very happy. Oh, I hope she doesn't see this now. Oh, well. Uh, so Anne and Beth go up there and they're really excited. They're talking about Frankfurt style cases. And this guy, Carl, who's a friend of theirs, is playing a practical joke. And what he does is to lock their door from the outside so they can't get out of the hotel room. Um, and so they stay in the room and uh, they keep on talking about free will and Frankfurt style cases. And eventually Carl uh, opens up the door and says, you ruined my joke. Uh, you didn't even try to get out. And the question is, did the people freely stay in the room, Anne and Beth? And it looks like it, uh, even though they couldn't have left because they weren't forced to stay in the room, right? Um, yeah, so that's kind of a Frankfurt-style case. But then somebody might say, oh, yeah, they weren't forced to stay in the room, but uh, they weren't able to decide otherwise, and that really is required. And so then what you do with the Frankfurt-style case is to move this locked room scenario 
which actually goes back to John Locke, a philosopher, uh, into the head. Speaking of John Locke, I think I've mentioned him a couple of times. What, what of his philosophy do you take from? What have you resonated with that he spoke about? Oh, yeah. So for me, I'm, I'm really not much of a historian of philosophy. I was with Aristotle, but the rest of it, uh, <laughs> I have to plead ignorance about. Not all of it, but Locke, Locke in particular, uh, I don't remember. It's been since I was an undergrad. Fair. Yeah. Fair. I was curious on that one. Sometimes once in a while I brought up one or another, but I don't always recall all the details, but I've always connected with a variety of philosophers and some of their quotes and messages. Oh, speaking of that, actually quotes, do you have any quotes that you use as a basis for some of your thinking that have been true for maybe decades or however long? Um, quotations from other people. Mm -hmm. Or like uh, messages from uh, like Aristotle or Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius or any philosophers where their thinking has been a guiding force in some way. Yeah, well, any... I am certain that Aristotle has been a guiding force for me since that's how I started. Um, I, I think, you know, one of his many important ideas is that Sometimes it's translated, uh, behavior makes the man, or something like that. We wouldn't put it that way these days, but uh, you are what you do, maybe. And mm -hmm. the idea is that, you know, by repeatedly engaging in certain kinds of behavior, you make a person, you make yourself a person of a certain sort. And that idea is part of the idea about little kids growing up into free agents uh, that I was talking about earlier. On the, on the idea, and well, I guess that's more of a biological thing, but is the, would the free agency of a little child be indirectly placed there by previous free agency of their background or their parents? Yeah, right. Now, certainly uh, their environment and genetics, you know, play an important role in making them the way they are early on. And so one question is, so does that influence on them of their parents and genes uh, leave them any wiggle room at all? Or does it just you know, drive all their behavior? And my response is, no, it, it does leave uh, wiggle room. It leaves room for learning and deciding and, uh, and, you know, there are even cases where even kids that young, like five years old, might think about how they uh, perceive themselves and what kind of person they'd like to be. So one story I tell, uh, not in this book, but in another one, is a little kid who's afraid of the dark in his uh, basement. And his sister is a year older than him. And the sister goes down there and she's not worried. And the kid thinks... Uh, well, geez, I shouldn't be such a chicken. You know, I should be a, a brave guy. I should be more like my sister. And he asks himself, how am I going to bring that about? And he thinks, well, I'll just go down into the basement for a while and see how long I can stay there before I get uh, frightened. And then I'll go back up and I'll try it again the next day and so on. And uh, it works. You know, he, he uh, loses his fear of his basement. 
Um, and this kind of thing is, is open to little kids, and it happens. And that the kid would do all this, I don't think, is um, determined by genetics and upbringing. But, you know, it's maybe made pretty probable by those things. Probability is a big factor here. It's like the, the influence of the past to the moment throws in probabilities. That's almost the past free agency appearing to exert itself on that time. And then it appears that at some point kick back in with a person uh, continuing the process. That's the best way to link those two. <laughs> hmm. um, does I like to check this in categories. Does the concept, like let's say something like physics, uh, F equals MA or those kinds of formulas, they're set in stone and no development on them, but then at the edges of physics, there's some development in the category of free will and determinism. Is there current development taking place today or is it highly cemented in some form? Yeah. Okay. That, that is a good question too. Um, you know, I think well, I have to take a, a step back a few years now, but I think um, probably in the 60s and 70s, uh, the free will literature was kind of stalled out and people were uh, stuck in their, their different viewpoints and there wasn't much progress being made. I mean, that's my recollection. Um, and then what happened is um, a new kind of libertarianism came to be discussed. Now, libertarianism is the idea that uh, free will exists and it's incompatible with determinism. So uh, it's what I call the mixed view of free will in the book. And this new kind of libertarianism was more naturalistic, down-to-earth kind of thing. And what it did was to take really what's best of the compatibilist view and then mix into it uh, some indeterminism. And that kind of view is still being developed and you know, there's still progress in that area. There's a, another kind of libertarianism called agent-causal libertarianism and uh, it depends really on a different kind of causation, we could say, than ordinary causation by states and events. And that's being developed. And um, there's a relatively recent kind of compatibilism that's different, too. And it says uh, free will is compatible with determinism, even if it's incompatible with the ability to do otherwise. So those would be compatibilists who buy the moral of the Frankfurt-style cases and think uh, you don't need to be able to do otherwise uh, to act freely. And they take that to support their compatibilism. Uh, whereas there are other compatibilists who think, oh, those Frankfurt-style cases don't work. And compatibilism, uh, I mean, free will really does require the ability to do otherwise. But that ability is compatible with determinism. Um, so we do have these different views out there. Uh, fighting with each other, and there is still some progress being made on a couple of those dimensions. That's interesting. It's almost, there's, finding merges between them is uh, 
challenge from the complete separate points because they're so uh, separate, but then finding one with the base of the other one there, but then you have free will on top. I like that there's a mixed possibility because normally you would just see one or the other and there's no room for any of, of both. So it's kind of cool to have a separate on, on uh, a mixing of, of the both. One question that comes to mind is um, what has been a, has there been any difficulty in bringing up points related to free will over time? Do you get any sort of uh, pushback in some form or uh, debate counter, kind of like the earlier counter response to some of you, what you have presented, or is it that um, because yours is more informational than trying to say there's an answer, there's not as much counterforce to that? Um, yeah, yeah. So if we're thinking about me personally, so I mentioned I was agnostic about this dispute between compatibilists and incompatibilists, a neutral. So you might think, oh well. That'll make him lots of friends, right? He's neutral on this thing that they disagree about. But, of course, the compatibilists think, no, I should be a compatibilist. And the libertarians think, I should be a libertarian. And the people who say there's no free will, and that there are a group of philosophers who take that position, think, yeah, I should, I should believe them. So I, I really have opponents on all sides. <laughs> In this little book, that doesn't come out much because... The book really isn't about me. It's about free will in general and uh, my, my little take on it. But, yeah, in other stuff, stuff I've written for philosophers, uh, there's a lot of argumentation back and forth. And another thing I've done more than most philosophers um, is to look at scientific uh, arguments for the non-existence of free will, and especially to look at the experimental design and the data and uh, see if they show that there's no free will or not. But again, that's that's a different book. And that work of mine uh, has had a good bit of influence on philosophers. And I don't get a lot of pushback on it. I, I think, uh, but I don't know. I think that's because philosophers like seeing a philosopher show that scientists haven't proved what they said they proved. <laughs> that could be. It's like one domain yeah. uh, doing the other domain in some way. Yeah, yeah. Like chemistry and physics sometimes I, I, oh, yeah. I would do that. We have this figured out. But wait, you didn't take into account this. No, this is the, our base is more uh, of a base level thing than your base level thing. Yeah, that's wonderful. Oh, wait, actually, let me add that in there. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on, this will be my second to last question, multidisciplinary institutes like the San Fe Institute where they mix in economics and uh, philosophy and physics. Uh, do you like the mixing of fields or do you enjoy more when individuals in one field go into large depth in one category and not too much uh, like interlinking? I see. Yeah, I like both really. Um, both of my grants, both of my big uh, grants had uh, an interdisciplinary focus and it was mainly uh, philosophers, neuroscientists, and social and developmental uh, psychologists. But they also had a wing where it was you know, pure philosophy, too. 
And I thought it was good to, to have both things. I think we learned a lot doing the interdisciplinary stuff, uh, and I, I certainly promote it. Uh, I'm in an interdisciplinary grant right now. It's called Neurophilosophy of Free Will. And it's, uh, I think there are 17 of us PIs, nine philosophers and eight neuroscientists, or the other way around. And we meet, you know, a couple of times a year. We have Zoom meetings, and we learn a lot from each other. So I think it's very useful. That's cool. My last question to you would be if you would have a message for individuals who read Free Will and Opinionated Guide, what would be one takeaway you might want them to have or one piece of understanding you would want them to come out with? Um, well, one thing I think is if they're interested in free will, this book will give them a, a really good starting point for thinking about it. And um, I think maybe another thing they can take away from it is uh, clear thinking can be very productive. That is a wonderful message there. Makes me think of deep work, the concept of uh, focusing on something for hours at a time. Wonderful. Alfred, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode, uh, having a discussion of content from this wonderful book that looks very cool and bringing us quite a bit of knowledge about free will, determinism, and views that makes parts of both. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Very glad to.